0: Hey everyone, it's Raghu Marcus and I'm back with Ramdas here and now. Little intro. I haven't done this in a long time so I'm kinda happy to revisit because it's always great to go through Ramdas's different talks. I I don't know and I've said this before I don't know how many times I might have listened to any number of these talks and listened to a lot of them obviously over the years. And, uh, I, it's, it's a, it's like completely fresh sometimes when something, you know, he starts talking about something. I forget that I even listened to this ever before. It was like new news. It's, it's pretty great. Um, so we have this, uh, amazing, um, talk because it's so relevant to the times from 1983, I believe. And I started thinking, well, what was going on then, 1983? It's a long time ago. So, uh, if, but I, I won't disclose what it's about yet. I have a couple of comments. But uh, before I do that, I want to just tell everybody that we have a wonderful Ramdas Fellowship talk. It's a free online event, and it's November 6th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern time. Frank was a longtime friend of Ram Dass's and taught with him and worked with him, most especially around death and dying. Of course, that is what Frank's expertise is. He does a lot of uh, uh, partnering up with our best friends, Roshi, Joan Halifax, and, Char- and Sharon Salzberg. And he uh, and so he's the co founder of the Zen Hospice Project, which Ramdas was on the board. And, you know, they were constantly in touch with each other. They were talking to people who were going through that transition. And uh, Frank is just an extraordinary expert in, uh, in taking people through conscious death and just giving people an idea of what it is that we all are going to go through. So no matter if you're young or middle-aged or old, uh, the time is now to uh, relate with just even the concept, which we mostly run away from. And he wrote a great book called The Five Invitations. So he's going to be doing this uh, wonderful talk and Q&A Uh, You must be there. I mean, he is just an extraordinary human being and an extraordinary teacher. He really is. November 6th at 5 p.m. in the West and 8 p.m. in the East. I'm going to say that again. 5 p.m. in the West and 8 p.m. in the East on November 6th. Go to ramdas.org slash events and uh if you can't get there on the sixth, is replay available. So take advantage. So, this particular podcast. Um, so uh, it speaks from, as I said, 1983. And I was thinking, what was I doing then? Oh yes, there was a lot of fear about nuclear war. And Ramdas, actually, I think it was around that time, he, he really did some social action. There was a group that was uh, attempting to stop the uh, transportation of nuclear waste from Los Alamos elsewhere. And Ramdas was involved with it. I don't exactly remember the timing, but certainly it's around this time, uh, this decade. And um, so it's all about how, how spiritual work equals social action. Uh, but you can't wait till you're free. Oh, well, I'm going to work on myself. And when I'm you know, maybe a few lifetimes from now, when I actually can take a conscious responsibility without being attached, then, you know, maybe I'll get to it, but no, that's not quite the way it works. Um, so So there's one thing here, I don't want to go on and on, but there's one thing that is a Ramdas quote that is so touched me. It just so touched me. I just want to read this thing for me and for everybody listening. So that with this new networking consciousness, we certainly have an appreciation that we are not alone, that there are other beings like us. And out of that comes inclusion incredibly new strength, incredible new strength, but yet the root issue of separateness is still present. And it's interesting. I'm just going to raise the question as we pursue this thing. I'd like to present that if your act comes out of separateness at some level, you are perpetuating the root cause of the problem you are perpetuating the root cause of the problem. And that's why spiritual work equals social action from my point of view, Ram Dass. I think that so perfectly encapsulates that issue that we all have. And we're in really uh, very pointed, shall we say, times right now, as we all well know. And... So this this is really valuable information as far as I'm concerned. Ramdas also talks about his model, which was Gandhi, you know, and uh, bringing how Gandhi molded that social action movement, action movement, bringing social action and spiritual work together, and the way that he was committed. It's quite extraordinary. So this. Um, Oh, and here's where he was at the Lama Foundation, if I didn't mention that before. Yeah, that's that incredible retreat center. It's been going on since the late 60s, early 70s. That's where Be Here Now was put together with Ramdas. And he had a close association with, with Lama over many years, all the way through to when he passed. And... Uh, yeah, it's an amazing organization, and uh, many things that, uh, were done by Ramdas at this uh, retreat center. So, here you go. It's um, again super relevant to these times, especially around the fear of war. I mean, that we are in right now. This particularly was a nuclear war. I don't even want to go there. Um, but there's enough pain and suffering to go around, and I think Ramdas really speaks to something that's inside, potentially inside all of us, to do the kind of work he suggests. This is Ramdas here and now, and we'll see you uh, next time. I'll try to get back. I just like having to go through these notes and this this talk and getting uh, nourished. It's really great. See you next week.
1: The Lama brochure presented this weekend as social action slash spiritual path. And um, I wondered what that slash meant. (laughs) Because it could be uh, social action divided by spiritual path. (laughs) It could be social action or spiritual path. Social action and spiritual path. could be social action each equals spiritual path. And I think that's perhaps the tack I would like to take today. The latter. The way in which these two things come together. If you're like me and I'm sure most of you are probably very much in your human heart. The immensity of what Dan has said to us makes one just quiver inside with pain, with indignation, with shame, with urgency, with fear, with strong commitment with a whole raft of the whole range of human reactions and it's hard at that moment to stand back and reflect as the gasoline is being poured down the aisle of the theater. It's nice to play string quartet on a ship, but when the Titanic hits the iceberg, it's hardly a time for string quartet. And um, you can imagine people in the Titanic at first feeling, well, we'll go on with the quartet. What was that noise? And then slowly feeling, well, maybe we ought to get our life jackets just in case to a realization that their whole lives were going to change very dramatic. And there's a tremendous inertia in the mass of people still to the recognition that their lives have changed and that they can't quite go about business as usual in view of the the creation of our minds, what we have created here. But I think that the my uh, my honoring of the opportunity to be with Dan is that um, we are sharing together reflection to listen, to hear the optimum way to heal, to alleviate the suffering, to stop the, the sinking of the ship, because as humans, We obviously want to protect and preserve a civilization, society, and avoid the kind of incredible suffering that uh, nuclear war of even the most minute scale entails. Talking with Dan and Pat this morning at breakfast about their recent experiences at the Livermore uh, civil disobedience action, their experiences in the prison, and I'm sure they'll tell you more about that this weekend, if you would like to share that with us. There was a, a, a delight in both of them of the, the loving spiritual quality of the imprisoned group, of the way in which they were bonded together by this suffering, and by this joy of making this collective statement. And I think anybody that has shared with another person suffering for a, something that is deeply intuitively right, knows how that bonds people together in an extraordinarily beautiful way. And that is certainly the reflection that the nature of the actions that are rising up in the country and in the world in regard to the nuclear issue is coming from a, uh, a place of many levels, some of which are quite deep spiritual. Now, what I would like to share with you are two levels from which this game is starting to be acted out or played. And I don't want you to be upset because I use the word game. It's not in a trivial or a pejorative sense. It's merely a term in the same way as dance or interaction or play. Because there are two things that have been happening in this culture that feed into what we are about at this moment and feed in specifically to the group that's gathered here this weekend. The first is that there have been a number of conditions in the world that have come largely through technology, that have confronted us with what is you know, has been called things like a global village has been confronting us with our interconnectedness with other beings, certainly the picture of the earth that was taken by the space program, certainly television, which has changed our concepts of time and space and the immediacy at which something on the other side of the world through satellite transmission is present right here. It's quite a different journey than when information came by sailing ship. It's changed our sense of who we are. Certainly the economic interdependence, as we're discussing with Saudi Arabian oil, or the fact that many of you are wearing goods that were manufactured by cheap labor in Taiwan, or Hong Kong, although that multinational was probably controlled in New York. Our sensing as the multinationals get an upper hand in and make nationalism somewhat anachronistic in an interesting way, was slowly becoming so, we get a sense of our interconnectedness as the poor people live on the other side of the tracks in Africa or in Bangladesh or somewhere, but it's it's getting to be a large village, no matter how much we would like to ignore that. And perhaps the the information about the threat of the bomb or the bombs or the nuclear holocaust, there's no word. I mean, Dan and I talked about that holocaust massacre, none of these words cover uh, intentionally being part of a destruction of 600 million to a billion people. There's no way you can even get your heart around such an issue. But the awareness that even a a decision on the part of a Nicaraguan or a Honduran can start a sequence of events that will affect you and me and somebody in Russia and somebody in China and somebody, et cetera, can't leave you with a sense, you can't protect your isolated position anymore. You feel like you are part of a global community. And you learn when you study general systems theory the way in which things are all related to everything else in physics in chemistry and social systems too. And you can feel now, and it's being forced more and more on our consciousness, the interweaving web of consciousness that this is all about. That we can talk hard stuff like bombs and silos, but we are also talking about the human mind. And the mind of, of Andropov and Reagan and Gaddafi and on and on, and Castro and etc. Caspar <coughs> Weinberger. And us. And us. And these are incredible mind nets of which we are a part. There is a book that recently came out by uh, Peter Russell. Uh, It's called Earth Brain, I believe. Which it describes the awakening of the consciousness of Gaia, of the Earth. That all that if you watch the sequence of evolution through the history of gases cooling and changing to allow certain kinds of formations of, of molecular structures and then those giving off certain things which allowed changes in the atmosphere, which allowed more complex organisms to develop. And these periods of evolution, if you watch the whole process, he said you could extrapolate out very easily to see the earth as an evolving, awakening entity in which all of human consciousness is the prefrontal lobe brain cells which have been on their individual trips finally merging into a structure which allows that to become the collective consciousness, self-consciousness of the earth. And that's what we are about and that we are part of an evolutionary process in which we are not quite anthropocentric anymore. The game wasn't all designed for humans. Humans were but a step in the process, only beginning into the point where the humans understand their part in something much more vast, in which they play a much more functional and unique role, but not quite as special as they thought they were. And part of the turmoil of the moment is in an evolutionary transition when the new has been made obvious but the old hasn't yet given way. So that the specialness of ego, whether it's individual or projected out as nationalism, and the specialness of the human who feels that it is working out of it has pitted itself against nature to survive, as Florence Clacone talks about those cultures in which they went from human under nature to human over nature that we can control and master. And we haven't yet graduated into the next level of evolutionary consciousness in which it's human in nature, in which we see we are just another part and we have a stewardship role, but that's all part of in the same way that the frontal lobes have a stewardship, but they are no more important than the liver because without the liver, the stewards don't do well either. <laughs> and with that realization, we find out that the, that the acts that we do because of the interrelationship of everything, just through this awakening consciousness of the network of awareness. That what we do affects us, the doer, as much as that to whom we do it. And the bomb is certainly a good example of that. And there's a beautiful quote from, from Gandhi that says... Um, So far as I can see, the atom bomb, atomic bomb, has deadened the finest feeling that has sustained mankind for ages. There used to be the so-called laws of war which made it tolerable. Now we know the naked truth. War knows no law except that of might. The atom bomb brought an empty victory to the Allied armies, but it resulted for the time being in destroying the soul of Japan. What has happened to the soul of the destroying nation is yet too early to see. Now, um, that kind of network awakening, which is part of something very vast and you can feel it in, in the culture at large. You can feel people beginning to appreciate their interdependence with other human beings and the whole what is called the networking movement is the tip of the iceberg of that process. But you can feel just in terms of the way in which the computer has changed the whole game, the way in which information, storage retrieval, and transmission has changed the nature of who we are. It has set up metasystems of which we must accept our parts rather than our supremacy. So we don't live in little self-contained units in which we are supreme anymore. We feel ourselves part of these vast networks. And the computer is perhaps the major, uh, that little teeny microchip, by the way, has done a big job in changing our consciousness about ourselves. The effect of that mass transformation, which you can feel, is so over-determined. It's not just determined by one thing. It's determined by a whole set of factors. It's determined by the increasing power of the have-nots and the terrorism in the world so that you no longer can say, well, those people that don't have the other, we're the 6% that use the 40 to 50% of the resources. The other people are over there somewhere. They're them. We no longer can keep them in their little uh, fence in area. It doesn't work, though. But with this whole process, this particular way this is working still leaves us as individuals as parts of a network, as still separate entities, but working together. And that's a big step, by the way. It's one where you no longer can say, I'm going to hoard and collect just for me and screw you. It is there's some point at which, even though anachronistically, most people are still doing that, there is the increasing awakening. I can't get away with it much longer. And that's, that's where we're talking about. That's one level of the game that's happening. And that is, but that is still based on separateness. And if you stop for a moment to consider the root cause of the predicament that has evolved to the exquisite horror that Dan has enunciated so incredibly lucidly. When you go back to the root cause, you say, well, why do nations hoard? Why do they threaten? Why do they do it? And they do it partly out of fear and partly out of survival. And fear and survival come from feeling that they are identified totally with themselves. I am myself in a hostile. I am a little me in a vast thing. And I must protect an arm to survive. So that if you go to the root source, you go back to, depending on which systems you work in, you go back to the Garden of Eden, at which the individual is thrown out of the Garden of Eden in which it it was in some kind of shared awareness into its own separateness. And it's thrown out because it starts to get enamored of its own intellect, And God says, Who told you you were naked when Adam and Eve are covered with fig leaves? Who told you you were separate? And there is the separateness that comes of eating of the apple. And it's inevitable, it's part of the nature of the human uh, journey, the human adventure. And uh, the Buddha, in describing the, enunciating the Four Noble Truths, said the cause, he said the first noble truth is there is incredible suffering everywhere. The suffering in form. And the nature of suffering, the cause of suffering is the clinging of mind to some thing, to some separateness, to some concept of self, to some concept of separate entity, to some body, to something. As long as you cling to something, since everything that is in form is changing, you're going to suffer about it built into the system so that if you look at the root cause of, I'm really going back to root now, I'm not going back to 1945, I'm going back to root root, we would have to say that the root cause of the thing that we are now finding ourselves in opposition to, the root cause is the fear that is the result of our identification with ourselves as separate and vulnerable. And therefore, it seems to me it behooves us to appreciate that wisdom of root cause in the way in which we go about eradicating the symptom of that. Because if we are not very conscious about it, the way in which we go about getting rid of the symptom May indeed not eradicate or help eradicate the cause, and the symptom merely comes out in another way, which has been happening again and again. And in some way, the bomb is merely the latest symptom of something that is very, very frightening about human endeavor or about incarnation or about being on Earth about the nature of greed and the nature of fear and the nature of of anger and the nature of doubt and the nature of agitation and, and all of those things which come out of that separate entity being frightened and very vulnerable. So that with this new networking consciousness, we certainly have an appreciation that we are not alone, that there are other beings like us, and out of that comes incredibly new strength. But yet, the root issue of separateness is still present. And it's interesting. I'm just going to raise the question as we pursue this thing I'd like to present. That as if your act comes out of separateness, at some level you are perpetuating the root cause of the problem. And that's why spiritual work equals social action, from my point of view. Okay? So here we go. Now, Joanna Macy um, said, despair, which is the combination of anxiety, hopelessness, and dread, cannot be banished by optimism or positive thinking, obviously clear. It must be named and validated as a healthy human response to the planetary situation in which we find ourselves. We have to open to the pain and to the horror and to the despair and to the ways in which we just wanted it to go away. We've got to open to our feelings. And then she says, if we open ourselves to our own grief, the joy of recognition of mutual belonging follows. And that is an incredible statement about how far we can get with that degree of network consciousness. That we can go through, you and I can look at, if you look at every time there has been a disaster, like a natural disaster, or just some kind of natural, for example, when Marin County runs out of water, or when there is a tornado or or some kind of an epidemic, the ways in which people band together and find joy in their way of dealing with hardship is, is uh, very profound and that is a spiritual awakening and it is a spiritual awakening that comes out of networking consciousness. And that networking consciousness was forced by trauma or by crisis. Now. That, uh, let's set aside for a moment, that particular evolutionary trend that we're seeing evolve. And now let me talk to you about another one, which is the, what might be called the mystical awakening or the perennial philosophy made manifest. For a number of reasons over the past 20 years, in this culture particularly, although in certainly many other cultures, there has been a speeding up of a whole other kind of awakening that is very different from this first one. It has many of the same ingredients, but it's basically different because it is an awakening that is what's called a spiritual awakening in the mystic sense, meaning an awakening out of separateness. Networking doesn't awaken you out of separateness. It merely awakens you into relationship network, but this one awakens you out of separateness into that component in yourself that is not only similar to everyone else, but is an identity with everyone else. And it has no form to it. It is not a thing. Because if it were a thing, it would be separate. So it is that part of you which... And our, of course, our intellects boggle at that thought. That there could be part of you that is not definable. Because the intellect so much wants to define. So it can control. Because the intellect is the instrument of our separateness. It is designed to protect and preserve our separateness. And the predicament is that the separate part of us is very relatively... um, It's it's relatively real from the point of view of that part of us. That's only one It's not it goes from being absolutely real Which is the way you felt when you're growing up that I am me and this is who I am and I am who I think I am And who am I I'm Richard. How do you do and I'm bounded by this and my mind and I was born and I will die and then in a moment You may have an experience in which you suddenly realize, and that word is a very relevant word, you realize that you aren't who you thought you were. That who you are is, was, will be, and it happens to be manifested in a form that is born and that dies. And you can say, your intellect immediately after that experience will say that was a hallucination. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? That's relatively interesting. I'll certainly consider that as a possibility. (laughs) But the problem is that the validity of that experience to those people that has it brings about a figure ground reversal in their universe, which, as Walt Whitman said, what happened to me at that moment for the rest of my life, I will spend my time trying to realize it because it starts a journey that is irrevocable and irreversible. You are, in the spiritual lingo, hooked. <laughs> you can say hooked by God, you can say hooked by whatever. Okay. And you can feel at that moment that any concept of self or separateness, and the Buddhists are very exquisite at articulating that in their concept of anatta, all of them are functionally useful soul, all this is functionally useful, but ultimately somewhat arbitrary, because what we are is, and the we merges into the is, and even to call it the one is just a label you impose, and it's why the word, the name for it has no name, and it's G-D, and it has a thousand names and no name at all. And you can call it the void or you can call it the one, it doesn't matter. It's all, it's all the mind trying, it's all the finger pointing at the moon. Now, that awakening has in it a tremendous sense of feeling like you have come home. That you belong somewhere, that you were not separate to begin with. That you didn't go out of the Garden of Eden, you just thought you went out of the Garden of Eden. That's what the apple did. It attached you to your own thinking mind, and your own thinking mind, because it thinks about things, leaves you always one thought away from where home is, because you're always thinking about including yourself, so you end up totally alienated, in which you are even an object to yourself, and you are totally separate from the universe, and you feel scared shitless, and you create caves, and you pick up rocks, and pretty soon you have MX missiles. Now from the point of view let's say that that lasts a moment it lasts timeless because when you're in that there's no time cuz who you are is not in time who you think you are is in time but who you are is not in time so when you come back into time conceiving of that state in which you aren't is terrifying it's awesome and you keep trying to stand somewhere in relation to it. And you talk about yourself as a soul. You talk about yourself in some way to hold on to your separateness, even though you are now considering this thing that has happened to you in this vastness. Swami Ram Tirith, a very beautiful saint who had realized this space. He describes it this way, and you can just feel your way into it, because it's, it's not speakable about you just poet, poetize Poetic, whatever that word is, about us, sort of finger-pointing. He said, I am without form, without limit. I am beyond space, beyond time. I am in everything. Everything is in me. He said, I am Sat-Chit-Ananda. Absolute truth, absolute absolute existence, absolute knowledge, absolute bliss. And that's not ego. I am. It's I am. It's that, that space. And you sense the way in which the forms that you are involved in in your separateness are in relationship to that formless. The Tibetan Diamond Sutra says form is no other than formless, formless no other than form. You feel that there are two sides of a coin. You feel that form is coming out of formless, that if you call, you can call the form that which comes into dualism, which comes into yin and yang, or dark and light, or positive and negative, or all of the polarities, and that If you go back from the two into the one, it all disappears. It takes the separateness for it all to manifest. And you feel the way in which the form comes out of the formless, and the formless is really just a reflection, the form and formless are reflections of each other. And so you begin to appreciate how law comes out of that which is beyond law, how morality comes out of that which is beyond morality how good and evil in the same way as dark and light come out of that which is where they merge, where they both exist simultaneously and then they come into form. And so there are planes that you exist in, in which you exist in a world of good and evil and there are planes in which it is equally real that you exist in that are beyond the plane of good and evil. And that's part of the dialogue that Dan and I share in terms of relevance of these ideas to our work today. Once you have tasted this, once you have tasted this, you begin to want to, if you will, go home or come into the one or awaken or become liberated. Because you can feel that as long as you are trapped in your mind of separateness, you are feeling frightened and vulnerable, no matter how courageous you are and how one pointed you are in your work. And you would like to come into that realm which you have felt where you are at home and peace and where the manifestation from the point of view of the formless comes out of joy and delight and pleasure rather than out of fear and anxiety and and insecurity. And so you become attracted to those which bring you from the many back into the one. And that's what the word yoga means, coming to union and all religions and all of those Philosophies called the perennial philosophies, are designed to bring you back to that. And, for example, Gandhi, who was well-versed in such yogas, knew that one of the roots to that is satya, or truth. And he saw that one of the roots to that is ahimsa, or non-killing. And he saw that one of the roots to that was tapasya, or purification through renunciation and suffering. And in, out of that model he molded the Satyagraha movement, which took those practices which were yoga practices designed to bring you back to the one and converted them into a social action formula. And I'm going to say more about that in a second. Now, both of these paths that I have presented thus far, that I presented, the networking in which we're separate but related, and the way in which we are one, but appearing to be many, and dancing as the many, both of them are genotypically different, but phenotypically look a lot alike in the way they manifest, meaning on the surface. They both will show increased compassion. They will both lead to new trust in one's intuitive inner voices. Because in order, if you are part of a network, You understand that you have a function within the whole system, and you have to listen to hear what your function is in network. So you start to listen to hear how to manifest, how you are manifesting. And if you look at the yogic journey, you see that the first thing it does is go from the attachment, I was separate, I'm alone, into the one into that place in us, our consciousness, that plane of consciousness in which we are not attached to body, personality, social stuff, and then it brings the circle around and brings us back into form. Because at that point, when you're out in la-la land, as I call it, you say, as long as I'm pushing away anything in the universe, I'm still pushing away part of the one, and I have to embrace the entire one. I have to embrace the darkness into my being. I have to embrace darkness and light in order to be free. So that these look, although somebody else's suffering for somebody that is awakened to the point of relational networking, somebody else's suffering they feel is connected to them and therefore they must do something about it because you and I are brothers and sisters. From the mystic point of view, the experience is you are me. And if your hand is in the fire, my hand is in the fire. And those are two different levels of generation of compassionate action. And I'd like to read a quote. Um, One of them is from uh, Jim Douglas, written a very good book on contemplation and resistance. And he says, To resist without seeking to shed the skin of the individual self. To resist without seeking to shed the skin of the individual self is not to resist at all. It is simply to confront the power of the world with a smaller antagonistic version of itself. (laughs) Heavy, heavy. I just want us to open to this. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I want a dialogue. (laughs) To resist without seeking to shed the skin of individual self is not to resist at all. It is simply to confront the power of the world with a smaller, antagonistic version of itself. Now I'd like to read another quotation to you from a fellow named David Spengler. The response to nuclear war is coming from deeper places in people than it did in the 60s. For instance, I can protest nuclear war because I'm afraid of it, because I have personal fear of what I may lose, my life or support systems in my world. I may protest it because I have a larger altruistic sense of the well-being of the ecology. And so I say, hey, this is really stupid. We have no right to do this to our world. I may protest it because I have a sense of how it damages the economy and robs other needy social programs. There can be many motives but there is some very deep level of myself that I can touch where I can simply say, I don't really need any of these motives. I just know it's wrong. Well, it's more than that, he says. I say, this shall not occur. It's a release of will. It's not a release of fear or violence. It's a release of will that, in its own way, is not in conflict with the nuclear proponents. If you were doing something and I say, stop doing that, I don't like it, then we can become polarized and you may be strengthened in your resistance to me. So, in a sense, my protest only makes you, my adversary, stronger. But I can exert a will, I can just say no to something that is not really directed to you at all, but is just a statement of presence, statement of fact. It is not an issue of conflict. I feel that kind of no is beginning to really emerge from the collective consciousness of humanity, and it is that particular course of social action that is coming from a place in you in which you are no longer a separate entity only, but you are part of that out of which all law flows and your action comes from a place in you in which, as Gandhi says, the soul force is indestructible and it goes on gaining power until it transforms everyone it touches. Gandhi said, make yourself into zero and your power will become invincible. What I see that Gandhi did was that he spoke out of two sides of his mouth. Not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. He said, for example, I could not be leading a true spiritual life unless I identify with all of humanity. You can hear that word identify from the networking point of view, meaning feel relationship with, or the identity, the formal sense of identity, meaning I am one with. I experienced Gandhi as a mystic who for perfectly political and and practical reasons, created a social action form that did not be based on people having awakened spiritually, in the true sense of the mystic awakening. He said, I can't, I'm a practical man, I can't wait for India to recognize the practicality of the spiritual life in the political world. So he worked with what he had to work with. At the same time, he knew what the force of this game was. And um, uh, where was it? Uh, Nehru said of Gandhi, a man whose thought, word, and act were so closely co-related as to form an integrated whole, when meeting him, an electric shock went through the system, soothing and enlivening. I'm talking about what the game is potential here for bringing those that slash being an identity or an equality, social action, spiritual work. I was in, I was in Thailand and I went to visit a monastery south of Bangkok in which they were curing opium addicts. Now, those of you that are in social service work, in me- mental health and medical work, know that curing heroin and opium addicts is not an easy job, and it's a very costly job in this country, and it's not a very rewarding one. That the addiction to these drugs is much more intense than the addiction to alcohol, even though and alcohol is helped by AA very markedly in things like that, where people who have been freed can help each other. It doesn't work quite that well with heroin addiction and opium addiction. Well, I heard from the woman who was the wife of the previous ambassador to Thailand that there was this monastery in which they took people in for 10 days at a cost of $15. And at the end of 10 days, they could not return again, and they were free of their addiction, and there was a recidivism rate of only 30%, that is 70% of them were supposedly free of addiction. Well, I couldn't believe that. So I went there, as many senators had gone there from this country, as the CBS had gone there from this country. And everybody went away from there, very perplexed and confused. They couldn't figure out what the game was. Let me tell you this story, just for a moment, because it's relevant. Josie Stanton, this woman that took me down there, told me the story of this monk. This monk had been a, with the, um, the Thai DEA. He was a narc. And his, um, and his aunt, who was a Buddhist saint, whatever that is, it's just a story, said to him, you know, if you don't watch out, you're going to just kill people. I thought, don't you want to help anybody? He says, I don't know how to do that. She says, you clean up your act and I'll tell you. So he left the government service and he became a Theravadan Buddhist monk. Now, the Theravadan Buddhist monks Take 218 abstinences. I mean, you can't spit. I mean, it's absolutely no-no right across the board. You can't lie on a hard bed. You can't have any musical instruments. No perfumes, no eating after noon. No, no, uh, oh, it's got you in like this, okay? Not only did he do the 218, but he added 10 more. Like he would not ride in a vehicle so that when he had to go into... Bangkok to do business for the monastery, which was some 200 miles away, he walked. This was merely his cleaning up his act. And then his aunt gave him an herbal brew, which was a diuretic, which people would drink and they would vomit. And they would sit in a big circle and they would take in, they had, I went there and there were 300 and you'd go and there were the pallets in big rooms. The first dayers looked like junkies and the second dayers looked like junkies and the third dayers, the fourth fifth, sixth. By the seventh day, they were saying, get a cigarette and they were more relaxed and by the ninth day, they looked just like us and the tenth day, they were leaving. And I couldn't believe this. So I said to him, how do you do this? I said, um, I said, I'm very impressed with this. He, I met him, he was like an oak tree, just like this, see, and I said, he says, we tell them they can only stay 10 days and they can never come back again. This is it, one try. And I heard they have saunas and they have diuretics, and but that we, the, we in the West have all that stuff too, and they, whatever, the herbal diuretic, that might be a little mystical from the aunt, but there's something else. And I said, well, uh, could anybody else do this that you do? Could it be translated to the United States or to the West? He says, perhaps. I said, well, could I do it? He looked at me very skeptically, and he said, well, (laughs) possibly, but he wasn't the least bit convinced. (laughs) And then he started a a little test, which I uh, will tell you about, because I didn't get very far. He said, Im- "Imagine you were up in a mountain and it was cold, and you had a blanket. And you had decided you only needed that blanket. And somebody came along and offered you another blanket. Would you accept it?" So you, I've taken so many tests, you know, in my life that I think of what the tester's trying to say, and I, oh no, I wouldn't accept it. You know, I said, "Because righteousness usually wins." See, so I said, "I, I have one blanket. One blanket's enough. It's all I need." He says, well, they leave the blanket anyway under a tree, and after a while, you need to go out to pee, and you leave your blanket, and you go out, and you walk around for a while, and it starts to snow, and you come back, and your blanket's covered with snow, and the other blanket's dry. Will you use it? So I said, of course I'd use it, because I only said I have a blanket. My a blanket is covered with snow. There's a blanket. Sure, it's there. I'll use it. He says, no. No. that's where the quiz answer ended. I don't know what the next question is. All I realized was that I had met somebody who had become the cure for heroin addiction. He was not using a cure for heroin addiction. That the power of that man's being was so strong that he was the first thing I'd ever seen that was stronger than heroin addiction. And I was in the presence of that, and I realized that those of us that say, well, I'd like to take a job helping heroin addicts, meaning from 9 to 5, is very different from what the ball game was that he was talking about. So that I agree. Okay, I'm nearly, nearly done. Now, I want to just oppose this, and I, I don't want to get into opposition because I, I feel that that uh, we need all the support we can get from every level and uh, there is not good, this is not good guys and bad guys. I merely want to point up so that we can become conscious of how we're proceeding. I want to read this quote from Helen Caldicott because I want to raise issue with it. She says, the fear that you have will motivate and guide you and propel you into becoming maybe one of the most powerful people in the world. That is true, but that isn't good enough for the game we are now facing. The game we are now facing is that what these bombs represent is us. This isn't them. I agree with Dan that somebody that wanted power and became a president and all may have a different religion than I have at some level, but still at root, it is a human being that is frightened, that has got a lot of the same stuff I've got, and I can't make this into an I-you proposition. This is us purifying ourselves and I realize that the ball stops here, that I know damn well that as I get into my MG and drive on a nice highway that I like tarred, and I get into a nice jet plane to come to talk at Llama and all that, there is a part of me that is enjoying being 6% of the population having this king of the mountain status, and that little part of me, whatever part that is, That hasn't got my act together so that my life of voluntary simplicity recognizes, as Gandhi says, live simply that others might simply live. Until I've got my act so integrated, so one pointed, there is some part of me that is saying to Caspar Weinberger, go, baby, go. But don't tell me how you do it because I morally can't handle it. And I agree that the government keeps secrets, but I say that we pay the government to keep those secrets at some level. Because we damn well don't know because they are us functioning as our cerebral cortex at a certain function. And when we want the game different, damn it, it'll be different. And when we are strong enough to look at ourselves, then we will be strong enough to demand truth. But most of us do not have integrity in our own lives. We are all full of righteousness and good here. And right over here, we have deception. We have hoarding. We have all kinds of stuff. And to me, in my life, that isn't good enough. It stinks. It's not, I'm not, I can't have any room any longer for guilt and self, self-deprecation self about it. I have to appreciate that's my evolving humanity. But I see where the path of real social action comes. I see what Gandhi's talking about when he says, make yourself into zero and your power is invincible. I see that when I look at this immensity of the coercive conspiratorial paranoia that we are facing. True, we don't wait till we're enlightened to act. And what I want to talk the rest of the weekend about it from when I have my chances is the way in which we use social action as a vehicle for purifying ourselves so that we keep a feedback loop going so that as we act out, we are constantly, even at the moment we're acting out perpetuating fear because we're still frightened, we are constantly going back in. And so that we are working on ourselves to become purer and purer instruments of what it is about. Because if you are not peaceful, you're not gonna live in a peaceful universe. If you're not rooted in love, there's not gonna be a loving universe. If you are not finding that place in you that is free of fear, even though you acknowledge there is also a part that is frightened, you are not going to be able to support a universe that is free of fear. So the the spiritual action, social action, spiritual journey, path, to me, is all of one thing. It comes down to what is sometimes called karma yoga. Martin Luther King, I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And I think that too often we say words like love and truth, and we think of them as kind of weak words. And we think of the MX as strong. I see the MX rooted in fear and feelings of weakness. And I see that action in us that comes out of the deepest truth in us. And the part in us where there's no fear because we are not standing anywhere. If you try to stand in righteousness, you're going to burn up. In this game, being on the side of good against evil is not good enough for this ball game. You are going to have to have found that place in you that is behind good and evil and have the guts to open to that, the place that is behind death and birth. And out of that emptiness will come action in which you are invulnerable in which your action, which will come in the harmony of things, because there's no way, as you as a conscious being and I can see, that you can be in an incarnation without acting. And we all hear the way in which your silence and my silence is acquiescence to a system. That's as much an action as walking at at Rocky Flats. We don't wait till we are free, but we make every action of this incarnation An exercise in becoming free so that we can offer the freedom, the truth that comes from freedom and the power that comes from freedom and the love that comes from freedom to the relief of all suffering, of all sentient beings.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.